This episode is brought to you in part by Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Adventure can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people, but many agree that pushing our comfort zone is really what adventure is all about. Getting right up there to the edge and then pushing beyond, be it around the world trip or maybe just a, a solo outing. It, it's different for everyone. But when you feel that fear and that self-doubt and then you overcome it, then you grow. And in the end, it's these emotions that forge the experience into a true adventure. And today you're going to hear a story with all these emotions and more. The story of a woman that set high goals for herself and then leaves home for a trip around the world solo on her bike. And while she's on the road, she finds that, well, you're going to have to stay with us to hear more. Hi, I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Brian Field. Justin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed Mark. Glenn Hickstead. Woody from Woody's Real World. Vanna Smith. Gregory Frey. Dave Barr. Michelle Lampier. Tiff Mikos. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Cox. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millwall. Roger Colbatch. Joe Rush. Crystal Bayer-Vaju. Lawrence Harkin. Jeremy Krieger. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Susan Johnson. Lewis Pye. Robert Wicks. Spencer Conway. Ted Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Lisa. Nita. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Stephanie Jevons grew up in a family of motorcyclists, right from her grandmother who was riding motorcycles during the war. And Stephanie continues that tradition because she's in the middle of, I guess you could say, or, or at least en route of her round-the-world motorcycle tour. Stephanie's goal was to, at least one of the goals, was to take her motorcycle to seven continents, including Antarctica, believe it or not. So we're going to get to that. I'm going to find out whether she made it, if she did, what was it like. And you're also going to hear something really interesting in this story because Stephanie is very upfront, very candid about the adventure and her emotions going through the adventure. And we talk about that. We talk about her leaving and what it was actually like, you know, inside her head, not the glory when she rode away, the back that everyone saw of a motorcyclist packed up on a bike, ready to go on a round the world adventure. What was going on inside the helmet in her head as a person who was now leaving off on her own into the unknown, something she's never done before. It's really interesting to hear her thoughts on this. So she's been on the road for two years, riding her Honda CRF 250L. She's ridden over 50,000 miles on it through 40 different countries, and she still has plans to travel for another year to go across Canada and Africa before finally returning to the UK. I spoke with Steph from where she's holed up, not far from our studio, really, in the big scheme of things, in British Columbia, Canada. 
So I have Stephanie Jevons, who is, I, I guess, sort of midway of a round-the-world trip, kind of a, a bizarre uh, multi-continent trip that's covered a lot, and I, and I think you're still in the middle of it. Steph, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. Yes, you, you said in the middle of it. I've been in the middle of it for a very long time. I keep extending it. So, um, Well, that's kind of funny because you started out, I think I think the original date was 2014 departure with a 2015 return. And geez, last time I looked at the calendar, I think you're running a little late. <laughs> well, yeah, I'd, I'd kind of said 15 months to two years, to be fair. Give me a little bit of credit here. but, uh, but uh, <laughs> Well, but, no, uh, that's uh, not unusual, Steph, because it seems like this this is a trend for, for motorcyclists. People head out there and they think, oh, we're going to do this. And all of a sudden it just turns into a longer trip. I think it's a common thing to say two years and then it can go on forever. But um, mine definitely won't go on forever, but I have been two years now and I've still got probably another 20,000 miles and possibly 12 months left to go. So yeah, fair, fair miscalculation there. <laughs> well, you come from a motorcycle family and, and I want to I start off really, instead of talking about you, I want to talk about your grandmother. <laughs> She'd be happy to hear that. Yeah, she well, she used to ride motorbikes in the war. She used to deliver the post, actually. Um, so she loved it when I was younger and I was uh, all part of the leather-clad bikers when I, when I was 18 and my first boyfriend was a biker. And we used to go onto her farm and take all the motorbikes and camp there. And she welcomed us with open arms. She absolutely loved having the bikes around. So, yeah, I think it's in the blood. So she, she rode the bike for the military effort. And uh, and did she ride afterwards? I don't think she ever did. No. It's interesting, you know. The I guess in those times, people do what they have to do. But I thought maybe that would that would sort of create a love of motorcycling for her. But but it went on because your parents were motorcyclists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my my dad oh was always around bikes when he was younger. My mum got into it a little bit later, and um, the two of them now do a lot of riding together. They they ride into Europe a lot. So they both live in Wales. They ride into Europe a lot and they they absolutely love bikes. They're always pottering around doing something. So pro- probably more than me. In fact, last I spoke to them, they were talking about riding to Russia together. I think they're just copying me now. So uh, <laughs> yeah, or trying to outdo me maybe, I'm not sure. <laughs> or maybe just being inspired, you know, they see yeah. you out there and they think that's fantastic. Well, how about you? When did you get started riding? I started when I was about... 18, I think. Well, I was on the back of somebody all the time until I was 21. And then I passed my test at 21. But I didn't have, I had a a child fairly young. And so I didn't have the opportunity to ride very much because it was more of a luxury than a, you know, a necessity. I had to have a car with my son. And so um, didn't always have the opportunity to ride. So I wasn't riding all the time when I could afford one, I'd buy a cheap bike, you know, and try and do it up or paint it purple or something ridiculous and make it as loud as possible, you know. But um, in 2008, I started riding off-road and uh, I got the opportunity to do a charity ride across South Africa with my sister. Now, my, my sister and I were both looking for something adventurous to do and she saw this advertised and said, oh, come on, let's do that. And or let's think about it, she said. So I, I went off and after the weekend, I phoned her and said, we're doing it. I've paid our deposits, we're doing it. So we went off and uh, we we did a 1500 mile off-road ride across South Africa, which we had never done before. We'd never ridden off-road before. So it was a massive learning curve. Um, and as soon as I got back, I, uh, I set up an off-road school with the instructor that gave us a couple of days training beforehand. Um, by the time I got back, I was addicted and we set up an off-road school together. So uh, <laughs> it was uh, quite a fast um, process. You were taking people to South Africa to learn? 
No, I, I did this trip in South Africa and, and I, I met, we had a two days training before we went to South Africa. So I met a guy at that point during that training called Mick Extance, who was a Dakar rider. He's the, the top British Dakar rider. And, um, as you do, we kind of had a few drinks in between on the Saturday night. We all went out for a Chinese and had a few drinks. And he said, I'd love to set up an off-road school. And I was like, well, why don't you? And he said, well, you know, I haven't really got the business acumen for it or anything. And I said, right, not that I did, but I was drunk. So I said, right, when I get back from South Africa, that's what we'll do. We'll set up an off-road school together. And of course, Mick being Mick, he held me to my word. So the first phone call I got back when, when I returned from South Africa was, right, are you ready? Are we going to set up this off-road school? And um, and that's what we did. I was a mortgage advisor at the time, but it was 2008. And of course, the, the markets were all crashing. It wasn't a good time. So I thought, well, I've got nothing better to do. So so off we went and uh, Honda came on board very quickly and we we set up a very successful off-road school. So I kind, I kind of learned all my extra off-road bits with the customers. So I would sit at the back where they couldn't see me falling off and uh, <laughs> and learn with them. So yeah. And what fire. became of the off-road school? Well, it's still it's still running. Uh, my old business partner is still running, but he's now with Kawasaki, um, and uh, and I set off to to come and do this trip. So, yeah. So this trip, just tell us a little bit more about what the idea was for this trip. Well, I've always wanted to do a long journey. When I, years ago, when I was uh, when I was in my early twenties, I always thought I wanted to travel the world, you know. But uh, life gets in the way, and I kept kept this in my head. And as I got more and more into motorbikes, I thought I want to travel the world by motorbike. And the the plan developed. And I, I think my original plan was that I wanted to ride to Borneo to see the orangutans. Um, always wanted to go and see the orangutans in Borneo. So I thought, well, I'll ride my motorbike there. But when you get to Borneo, you you still have to get back somehow. And I was close to Australia by then. So I thought, well, if, I, if I'm going to Borneo, I might as well go to Australia. If I'm going to Australia, I might as well go a different way home. So if I'm doing six continents, I might as well try and get to the seventh continent of Antarctica. And um, and really, that's how it came about. It was it was a silly thing. And my insurance policy to do it was to was to tell everybody. So I, I went around telling people I was going to ride the world. And uh, they're like, yeah, right, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and but I'm a woman of my word. So I I. I I knew that if I if I said I was going to do it, then then I had to do it. And so uh, I was kind of backed into a corner by myself, really. Well, public declarations, they're great, aren't they? I mean, they, they force you to do something that you really want to do anyway, but it's, I mean, same as anything, anything big that you do that's scary, it tends to make you want to pull back at different times. Well, you know, the night before I left, I was absolutely terrified. And I had a load of people waiting for me the next day from the Ace Cafe there was about 200 odd people there at Adventure Bike Day. I was leaving for on that day. They were all waiting and expecting this, you know, there was so much support. It was ridiculous. And I was thinking, well, I haven't done anything yet. And I was crying the night before. I was going, everything's wrong. I can't do this. Maybe I should just sneak off in the middle of the night. <laughs> what if I don't make it past Germany? That was my biggest fear. <laughs> What if I can't make it past Germany? Uh, I can remember saying that. And uh, I looked at the map that I'd been drawing, you know, sort of, I had on my office wall and I'd been sort of looking at this map for, for a couple of years and I'd drawn the route on it and a rough route, changed it several times. Suddenly the night before I was looking at this map again with new eyes and I was like, what made me think I could do this? You know, um, this is ridiculous. But I didn't even have enough money to finish it off. It was just like, well, I've no idea how much it's going to cost. I, I really haven't done enough research. All my luggage is wrong. And now everybody's expecting me to do it. And uh, But it was 
it was an amazing day in the end. The leaving day was terrifying, but uh, but it was awesome. The feeling of, of riding off from the Ace Cafe to the, to the cheering crowd was well worth it. <laughs> I think sometimes people think that if you're you're telling everyone publicly, it's almost easier because you have the support. You know, you have all these people saying, oh, that's great. You know, like you said, 200 plus people waiting for you to go. But it really sets you up for a bigger fall, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you've got that pressure of, like you said, what if you don't make it past Germany? What if you can't do it? And all of a sudden you have your your own personal doubts. Had you been on your own, you could have just said, well, you know, I'll, I'll just go and see how it goes. But you knew you had to get up in the morning and, and leave the Ace Cafe with all these people standing there with huge expectations for you. Take us back to that moment. I'm really curious what it felt like for you at that moment when you're about to leave and you're getting on your bike and riding out. Well, first of all, I had my family there and a load of a load of bikers who I'd never met before who were being extremely supportive. Her family, friends, and uh, Mark, the owner of the Ace Cafe, came over to me and says, right, in 10 minutes, we're going to have you on the roof. I was like, what? You're joking. You're joking, right? And uh, he says, no, no, I'm not joking. I thought, yeah. He, and he walked off and I thought, yeah, he's joking. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, he comes back, right, come on then. And he's holding a Union Jack flag. He walks me up the stairs takes me onto the roof and then and then shouts out everybody with a loud hailer, you know, attention, and uh, does a big introduction and says she's about to leave around the world and let's give her a big cheer. And I stood there waving. He presents me with a bacon butty, uh, bacon sandwich, and uh, says, here's the official bacon sandwich to take away with you. And, you know, everybody gives me three cheers. And I'm just stood there thinking, this is ridiculous. And then he walks me down through the cheering crowd and to my bike, and they expect me to leave at that point. Well, I hadn't got my GPS organized. I hadn't said goodbye to my family. I didn't realize it was going to happen this quickly. So so I kind of get to my bike and go, oh, okay, uh, bye, Dad, bye, Mum. Okay, quick, give me my GPS, you know. And I jump on the bike, and I'm shaking, and I keep thinking, I'm going to drop the bike. I'm going to drop the bike. Um, Don't drop the bike. But uh, I I rode to the entrance. They stopped the traffic for me. And there's about 10 or 15, I'm not sure, uh, bikers waiting there to escort me out of London as well. So uh, off I ride and um, to the to the cheering crowd (laughs) and then a load of bikers behind me. It was very, very cool. Looking back, it was very cool. At the time, it was terrifying. Sure. Very emotional, I'm sure. Especially leaving your family like that, not getting to say what you thought was your proper goodbye. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I spoke to them later on and said, oh, I'm sorry, that was so quick. And they said, oh, we expected it to be a bit, you know, a, a bit longer. But no, no problem. But they, they looked kind of excited and worried and, and, and everything all, all at once, you know, just, just looking at them. And as I rode off, I caught one of my friend's eyes, made eye contact with him in the crowd. And I remember looking at him and, and my eyes must have been pleading to him almost like, oh, this is terrifying I'm actually doing it you know it was such a big build-up but uh I tell you what the the feeling of riding off and once I'd got on that road and and riding off um the train particularly into France was ah it was the anniversary of uh the great escape as I remember uh if I recall correctly and uh and as I rode off the train I had this great escape theme tune in my head and I just think thought I've done it I'm free you know so it was a great feeling for those who don't know, the Ace Cafe is, you know, the bike place in the UK while in London, isn't it? Correct. Yes. It's been going since the 50s, I think. So a lot of history there, a lot of bike history there. Yeah, And, and there's always big events going there. There's, I mean, that, that is, the, that is the, the pinnacle of bikerness right there. 
Correct. Yes. <laughs> so when you rode away and you've, you've got all the fanfare and there's music playing and there's and there's lights and, and all of that, there must have been a point, maybe it was when you were on the train there, where everything just sort of quietened down and you realize it's just you. Yeah, well, actually, um, a friend of mine had asked if he could come ride with me for the first couple of days. So when we got off the train, I still had somebody with me. A good friend of mine who was the perfect, called Pete, who was the perfect companion for the first couple of days because he was very calming, very calming influence and very positive guy. So as my butterflies were all kind of churning at my stomach and um, he was there with me. So uh, we potted on for a couple of days together. We got to the Nürburgring and um, and then we said our goodbyes. And... Uh, and then they started all over again because the, the the butterflies calmed down. I felt like I was just on a holiday. We had great weather. It was lovely. And then he said goodbye and it started all over again. So, <laughs> um, so, so that was when I was really, truly on the road on my own for the first time. And, and I'd never been abroad on my own before, not even off a bike. So I'd been abroad a lot. So I'd ridden abroad a lot, but I'd never... I don't even organize motorbike tours abroad, but I'd never ridden on my own abroad. And I honestly didn't know if I was going to like it or how I was going to cope. But of course, that's what the journey was all about, to see what I could cope with. What was going through your head when you rode away from your friend there and, and that's it, you're on your own? Well, he rode away from me. I, I said to him, please, you go first. <laughs> Leave me to gather my thoughts. And, uh, and the funny thing was, in fact, I've got a video of this, but uh, he rode off, turned left rode up and he'd gone the wrong way. So he was in a cul-de-sac. So we did the good, good, big goodbyes. He waved goodbye. And then two minutes later, he's passing again and waving. <laughs> but yeah, that was, um, that was scary. It was exciting, but it's just that horrible, sickly feeling that you get, you know, when you're nervous of something, you just wish you could get rid of that. Mm -hmm. And of course, over time it, it, it goes away, but I was quite a nervous, a nervous person at first. I dropped the bike fairly quickly into the journey. Um, I was in Germany and I, I dropped the bike in a lay-by and uh, I thought, I can't do this. This is this is crazy. What made me think I could do it? I was on my tiptoes on the bike. I had a lot of luggage. And um, as I fell over, rather unceremoniously, I, I lay there on the, on the, in the lay-by <laughs> looking up at the sky thinking, I can't do this. And it started raining just at that point. And uh, a car suddenly comes screeching to a halt and I thought, oh, they must think I'm injured. So I had to jump up and go, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, you know. So they helped me get the bike up and the throttle is then stuck at this point because it's landed heavily. So uh, I just thought, I I don't know what I'm doing. This is this is just, uh, this was such a bad idea, you know. But of course, because I told everybody, I had to keep pushing forward. I think if I'd have gone, just gone off on my own, perhaps I would have turned back at that point. <laughs> so it was that, a That's true, chance. isn't it? I mean, we're almost, it, it's almost better. I mean, well, like we said earlier, that public declaration, it pushes you to do something you want to do, you know you want to do. But when it comes to it, that fear, I mean, I'll bet what's running through your head is give me an excuse, give me an out. Yes. You know, like yeah. you said, when you're when your eyes caught your friend's eyes, you're pleading, you're almost pleading with them, give me a reason not to go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what did you leave behind? Who was standing there in the crowd seeing their 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 loved one leave? I mean, other than all the other bikers that were there. Yeah, well, uh, there on the day I had um, had my my parents and uh, a few other family members, uncles and aunts and cousins, and uh, it was quite a family affair. Uh, and then uh, and then a few friends had come up from Wales as well, and a couple of friends from London were there as well. So, um, but my my son, I, I leave my son left my son behind who who didn't come up to the event because he was working, 
but he was very cool when I left. He was just like, yeah, okay. I was like, I'm, I'm going to ride around the world on my own, son. He's like, all right, see you later, mum. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I see that your son is 21. He's 22 now, yes. 22, yeah. which really yeah. shocked me because when I look at you, you don't look old enough to have a 22-year-old son. Oh, well, thank you very much. I did start young, so. <laughs> yeah. So, in fact, that was one of the reasons why I kind of left at this stage because, um, in all seriousness, was because I, I did have a, a child very young. And so I needed something sometimes to drive me through and, and say, well, you know, okay, well, you, you're not going to be able to do all these things now, but when you're when you're older, when he's old enough to look after himself. And it was just one of those dreams that you kept in the back of your head. So it really has been with me for years and, and it really is a dream come true. Yeah, because when you have a, a child, when you're young, you miss out on a lot, really. I mean, you give your life up to take care of your, your child in some ways. And um, I guess now you're sort of having me time. Absolutely. Yeah. And and he seems to be very cool with that as well. He's he's got his own life. He's very independent. He's very happy. He's uh he's he's doing well for himself. And and so um yeah, he seems to be pretty proud of me. He doesn't always show it. He uh he's quite a cool guy. But I his girlfriend did let on to me at one point when I was in the newspapers back home when I made it to Antarctica and uh, I was in the papers there and, and she says uh, he's just run out to go and get them get the paper and show it to all his friends. Now he never would have told me that himself. So no, of course not. It's a young guy. He's gotta be cool. Absolutely. <laughs> Especially when it comes to mom, you know. <laughs> It doesn't matter what you do as a parent. You never, you never had said cool, right? You know. Yeah. So. <laughs> you really believe in it. It's very clear with the part of your story you've told us so far that when you have a dream, you've got to set it in motion somehow. And I think you said somewhere that you really believe in. If you have a dream, you've got to set a date. Absolutely, that's something I tell everybody. Is um, you know, is set a date and, and don't give up on it. It doesn't matter. I mean, I, I had no idea how I was going to make it happen. And that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how far away that date is. If you say, I'm going to do this in five years, 10 years time. Because um, a lot of people say to me, oh, I'd love to do that, but I can't because, you know, I've got young kids or I can't because I've got this and that. Um, we'll just set a date and say, okay, well, all being well, um, you know, there's a bit of luck involved as well. You know, you have to work towards these things, but there is a bit of luck involved as well. Um, you know, maybe circumstances won't allow you to do it. But uh, if you set a date... And then start working out the rest. Work backwards if you need to, you know. Um, but, a, but a date is very important. And then things happen. You just, you can't imagine how they're going to happen. But if you start the ball rolling, things do just happen, you know. If you really want them to, you can work towards it. I think when a lot of people say that, though, you know, yeah, I would love to do that. It's sort of like they don't really want to do it. What they're really saying is I love the idea of it, but um, it's yes. uh, not something I would commit to. Well, it's it's that riding off into the sunset thing, isn't it? And and I think the 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 idea of freedom, um, it, you know, it, it you have this image of of just oh yes, it must be amazing and t- taking on the road alone, and and it is amazing, it's great, you know. But there's a lot of um, it's a lot of hard work as well, and to get to that point is a lot of hard work, you know. It does kind of annoy me slightly when people say, oh, you're so lucky, and I and I feel like saying, well. 
Oh, I did work pretty hard to get here. It's not all about luck. <laughs> you know? And a lot of people say that. I mean, I've heard that. I think, think it was a, a famous boxer that said that when people say you're so talented, he says, look, it's not talent. You know, it's yeah. day after day of hour after hour of really, really hard work. Stop saying it's talent. I, I wasn't born yeah. with this innate ability. I mean, when you were leaving there, when you're leaving the Ace Cafe, there's really probably two different feelings at the very least in the crowd. One would be the, the people who are seeing this romantic vision of you riding off into the sunset and thinking this is so cool and you've got the world by the tail. And then there's your close family and friends who are saying, I'm so concerned. I really, I can feel how big this journey is and um, maybe even how vulnerable you are and and how unprepared you are because until you do something, you're not prepared. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I did feel, I have this sort of feeling of being a fraud almost because I left thinking, well, you know, am I supposed to be the expert here? You know, (laughs) I have have no idea. And actually the the fact that you said vulnerable, I did feel extremely vulnerable. And I think I almost wobbled out of there. You know, it was, uh, it was a very strange feeling. Um, So yeah, lots of emotions going on and hence why my parents look so concerned, I think, (laughs) you know. My father said he looked 20 years older as I waved goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I'll bet. So is that all gone now? Do you not feel that apprehension? Um, Do you have a different way of dealing with the new and the strenuous? Yeah, well, for want of a better word, it's a better description. It it really is a roller coaster ride. And of course, at the beginning, it's all exciting. Everything's exciting. Everything's nerve wracking. I mean, when I first got into Europe and Eastern Europe and, um, you know, there was a lot of new stuff for me, even just staying in a hotel room on my own in a strange city. And, um, you know, I, I didn't start camping until a little bit, a few weeks in maybe, cause it was still quite cold at night and I was still getting my, my sort of my nerves together. Um, but slowly things just, it just becomes what you do, I guess. Um, and you have to push a little bit harder to find that buzz. Of course, it's still enjoyable. It's a very different thing. Um, you've proved something to yourself already at this stage. So um, I, I know that I can do it because I've been doing it for the last two years. So that um, self-doubt has gone away. Um, I feel like I could take on most things. Um, at certain stages, I feel like I could achieve anything. You know, anything is possible if I set my mind to it, which is a great feeling. But there are ups and downs as well. I think the initial high, there has to be, you have to come crashing down from that at some stage. And I'm not sure if that's the same for everybody. But I did come to a point where I felt quite sort of low. Um, And it was because I've learned now that it's because the initial excitement had worn off. And um, now I was just getting on with it. And I think it was in Iran that I first had my first down, real sort of down moment. And I thought, oh okay, what do I do now? You know, um, but of course that didn't last long. And, and there's so much more, each border brings a new country and new experiences and new people. Um, so it's thankfully it doesn't last long and, and you, it just, it evolves. The journey evolves. You sound confident now to me when I listen to you speak and you, you sound like a, a woman who knows what she wants and sort of takes charge of things. Is it the same woman before March 23rd, 2014, when you left the Ace Cafe? I think you'd have to ask my friends that when I get back. But uh, (laughs) I I guess I am more confident. I I was always a little bit, um, uh, I was always a little bit pushy. I was always quite driven. Um, You know, I I wanted to achieve something. I would push for it. But there was more self-doubt than there is now. Uh, I I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. So um, (laughs) I I, love that. (laughs) and, And when I get home, I... 
I, I'm still not 100% sure, but the, but things are evolving in my head. So I've got plans in my head as to what I want to do. And I do believe that whatever I decide will happen, which which might sound arrogant. I hope it doesn't. Um, it's just that I, you know, it's positive reinforcement. Um, I believe that if I put my mind to it and put enough hard work behind the idea, it will happen, you know, um, and I have a lot of support. I'm lucky enough, to, lucky enough to know a lot of good people who are willing to support my ideas and um, encourage me. We're going to take just a minute break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask Steph some good questions about would she prescribe this adventure for someone else? Is this something that she thinks other people should do? But before we get to that, I'm going to talk to you about Giant Loop. Giant Loop is one of our show sponsors, and we're really proud to have them. They make amazing bags, if you don't know already. If you haven't tried them, you got to go buy one of the shops that sell them. They are known for incredibly durable, waterproof bags. GiantLoopMoto.com is their website. And if you use the promo code ARR, it'll get you free shipping in the U.S. Uh, But what I want you to look at today is really cool. This has been around for a little bit, but it's their Great Basin Saddlebag. You go to GiantLoopMoto.com. Look at their Great Basin Saddlebag. There's another one. The Coyote is is similar to it. But this one I think is really cool. It's It's sort of a loop. Um, that fits over the back of the bike. It's got these amazing tie downs. And this is, by the way, this is one of those products that's been developed for dual sport bikes and being beat really hard over rough terrain. So that's what it's made for. It's made with military spec materials and construction. Just a really tough all-round design. And it fits loads of bikes. Go to the Fitment chart and see what bikes are listed there. Just about every bike you can imagine is listed there that fits on. It's a great concept. And of course, as soon as you look at it, you can understand why it sticks on the bike so well. There it is, giantloopmoto.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And now back with Stephanie Jevons. So would you prescribe this to someone else? Ah, good question. I'm not 100% sure. I think it depends what you're giving up. Um, I think for me to do it again, I I haven't got another trip in me like this again. I think it's taken a lot out of me um, and given me a lot as well, of course. And I think I would be nervous to tell people, yes, give everything up and go for it. You know, if you can just do it and it's, you know, then then fine. But But it's a tough thing. Um, and it's not necessarily the ultimate journey. I think that there's nothing wrong with shorter journeys, uh, smaller adventures and coming back to something, you know, um, it's, you know, you, you will learn a lot about yourself, but you will from shorter journeys as well. I did quite a lot of short adventures before this, uh, not on my own, but I did a lot of short journeys and they did change my life. They, um, in one way or another. So, you don't necessarily have to jump on a bike and go around the world to change your life. But if it's something you really want to do, but you're nervous of doing it, I would say go for it. You know, um, there's uh, don't let the hurdles, the barriers that you're you're putting up in your own mind stop you. Break through them. And once you get on the road, don't worry about the fact because a lot of people say to me, well, I have no mechanic or I'm not a very good rider or I don't speak any of the languages well, I'm probably none of the above. You know, my mission has been to fall off a motorbike on all seven continents and, and I've done very well in that. So don't worry about it. I'm no mechanic. Um, I, I can 
you know, I can use duct tape and cable ties pretty well, but otherwise I'm, I'm, you know, and I know a lot of very good writers, Nick Sanders being one. I used to work with Nick Sanders who has some world records under his belt, has been doing this for 30 years. Wouldn't know what to do with a spanner if he wouldn't recognize a spanner, I don't think. I hope he doesn't mind me telling you that. (laughs) Oh, he's told me that before. (laughs) Oh, great. Okay. (laughs) So um, there are a lot of people out there doing these things and they're just not letting those, those, if you want to call the weaknesses, get in the way. So, um, so if it's something you really want to do, then set a date and go for it. To put this in perspective for someone who hasn't done something like this, would it be analogous to maybe finding a, a tough trail that you get into and as you get into it, it gets tougher and tougher and you go through some really difficult spots and all that goes through your mind is, this is amazing, I can't wait to tell others, but I do not want to have to turn around and go back to this trail again. <laughs> That's funny that you should say that because I hate going backwards. I will do anything not to go backwards. I don't know what it is. It's it's a mental thing in me. And once you've got so far as well, you know, you just think, no, you just got to keep pushing forward. In fact, prime example of this is um, I was in Patagonia and we all know how windy Patagonia can be. Um, well, it was a very windy day and uh, the wind guru was telling me not to leave. The hostel owner, um, who was very nice, was telling me not to leave. and said, it's very windy. Do not leave today. And I said, uh, you know, it's just a bit of wind, right? I've ridden all the way here, you know. <laughs> I'm an adventure girl. I can do this. I've got it. I've got this. And so I, you know, stupidly set off. And as I was leaving this, the town, which was obviously quite sheltered, I was thinking, wow, this is really windy. Uh, and then I got out of the shelter of the buildings, got onto the coastal road and was barely hitting 30 miles an hour because the wind was so strong. As I came around the, the headland, uh, came around the corner and out of the shelter of the cliffs, the wind just, a gust came along and took me to the other side of the road and, and spat me out and threw me on the floor, me and the bike in front of a in front of a truck, an oncoming truck. So that was quite a scary moment. And um, it, it took quite a lot for me and two other guys to get the, me and the bike back behind the cliffs. I was like, just just get me back behind you. It was 200 yards. Just get me back behind the cliffs. And I, and I said, I'll be okay. And they went off and, and off they went. And I, I was there on the side of the road thinking okay, what do I do? Do I go back to the town and face the fact that I was wrong? (laughs) Or what do I do? How do I get to the next town? So what I did in the end was um, I started sticking out my thumb to to any vans that came along and I I hitched a lift. So some guy finally stopped in a white van and uh, I said, do you speak English? He says, a a little, you know, and I said, "Ah, any chance I could have a lift with my motorbike? And... um, it's almost like the, in the films, you know, when you see the, the good-looking girl hitching, not, uh, you know, as an example, good-looking girl hitching and the, and the guy hiding in the bushes. And then when, when a car stops, he jumps out and they both get in. <laughs> well, I didn't hide the motorbike, but it was kind of like that. Can you take me and my bike, please? And the first guy that stopped was like, yes, no problem. He had an empty van. We put the bike in the back. We strapped her down and um, off we went. And <laughs> And he got me to the next town and uh, and I was very pleased with myself, I must admit. I didn't have to go backwards. So, um, so yeah, but muddy trails and things, they, they can be quite scary uh, at times because you're never quite sure if you've got it right. You know, you're always like, do I trust my GPS? Do I trust my own judgment here? Where am I going? I haven't seen anybody for hours. Um, and you just keep pushing on and eventually when you when you make it and you realise, of course, I, it had to be the right trail. This is the only trail there, there could have been. Um a lot of self-doubt comes in, but uh, but yeah, going backwards is not usually an option for me. You're riding a Honda CRF 250L, 
And um, in the way you're talking about a couple times now, having to pick it up, did you find it's just too heavy? You've got a bunch of gear on there and it's, it's, a, it's a little cumbersome? Well, <laughs> uh, I'm embarrassed to say that I can't lift it with the luggage on. I mean, I went for a, a small light bike so I could uh, lift it easily. And there are people out there with massive bikes, you know, but, um, but I wanted something that even if it was upside down in a ditch, I could drag it out. I was exhausted and it was hot. Any situation I could drag it out of there on my own. And, and I can, but I do have to remove the luggage first. <laughs> um, so, which isn't, isn't too difficult. So, uh, I have plenty of video footage of me, um, stripping down to my t-shirt taking all my all my stuff off and then stripping the bike down then lifting the bike up then reloading everything putting my clothing back on and riding <laughs> off and the word and it has happened it happened in australia where i did exactly that boiling hot in a in a muddy forestry uh miles from anywhere and uh maybe five minutes later i'll drop the bike again <laughs> and I, I will never show that video footage because there was a lot of cursing going on i must admit <laughs> Most of it's bleeped out. Yeah, absolutely. Just go put know, music over that bit. <laughs> anyone who hasn't done it probably doesn't realize how difficult it is to, when you get into a situation where it's uneven and muddy and you've got a loaded bike to actually pick the bike back up and, and get it stood again. I mean, regardless of the weight, you know, bikes are heavy when they lay down. They are very heavy, yeah, and and um, I've got some great footage again, actually, of uh, in Ecuador dropping the bike. Yeah, I've been doing really well. I've done this this great track, no vehicles, just just the odd horse and 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 uh, guide pulling the you know uh, walking along with the horse or whatever. But um, I dropped the bike and uh, I finally lifted it up, just managed to get it up, and. Then, the, as I always say, the cavalry arrived and this guy, this little old guy comes around with his horses, you know, I'm just like, oh, great. You know, now you turn up. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's hard work. It's um, it's great fun, of course. You know, I love doing the dirt trails and, and the muddy stuff and, and the, you know, because that's when you get to places that are out of the way and, and not everybody's seen and you really feel like you're on a proper adventure, whatever that means. Um it just feels exciting and thrilling, and that's that's when the adrenaline really gets up again, and you get that that buzz that you that you came for, really. What kind of travel rhythm have you fallen into? Uh, time-wise, you mean? No, I mean travel rhythm, as in um, you know you're moving sort of open-ended from one place to another. You must have run mm. into something where you find you're getting up in the morning, you're covering a certain distance, or maybe you're hanging out in places and buzzing in between. Yeah, I do. I tend to be an early riser. So when I ride with other people for occasionally, I meet other travelers and we will ride together for a couple of days, whatever. I do find that um, I'm more of an early, early riser than most. Uh, I, I like to be up and organized and on the bike and riding early. And then I'll stop for for and make myself a coffee or, or some breakfast or whatever on route um i tend to keep my miles to 200 miles or less a day but it varies massively um uh and i like to be somewhere well before dark because i don't always plan where i'm going to stop or or anything so i like to to have plenty of time for things to go wrong and not to be riding in the dark that doesn't always work but most of the time it does. And if you're going into a city, then you, you want to have time to be able to navigate through the traffic and, and find the right hostel or, or whatever. Have you been camping or staying in hotels? Are you doing a combination? I do a bit of everything. So I'm very lucky that I have um, a lot of people that follow my blogs that have been following the blog since the beginning. So 
not so much in South America, but since I crossed into the US, uh, I've had a lot of people contact me and offering me places to stay, which is great because I've run out of money a couple of times on this trip and once was on the way into the US. So uh, hotels and the most expensive country that I'd got to. So hotels were not an option for me. And uh, people came to my rescue really and said, come and stay here. We have a sofa for you to sleep on or a floor or a bed or whatever. Um, but I've, I've done couch surfing, which is obviously a great way to save money and meet people. Um, I've camped. I've stayed in hostels and, uh, yeah, a bit of, bit of everything, lo- local bikers. So, yeah. But we get a lot more coming up in just a minute. Steph goes into Iran, which may or may not be the experience you expect to hear. Well, that depends. You'll have to stick around and listen to that. But just for a second, I want to talk to you about Aerostitch. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR is going to get you 10% off your next order, which would be amazing if you're ordering a riding suit, anything for that matter. 10% is a nice chunk of money. Or if you're an existing customer already, it's going to get you free shipping. So that's definitely something to check out anytime you're dealing with them. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, of course. Right now, I think they've also got another special. If, you, um, if you're ordering now, you'll get an Aerostitch lightweight touring book, which is really cool. This is one of the neat things about Aerostitch when you go and look at their website. They have all kinds of little extras on there. And they're the kind of extras that you're only going to get if you're a motorcyclist. You know, you can tell the riders behind the scenes because of all these little things. It's the Aerostitch Lightweight Touring Book, which I think is pretty cool. Normally sells for five bucks. I think you get it free if you order something right now. Something you can get for free right now is their catalog. You can download it for free or you can order the paper version. Frankly, I like the paper version a lot. But uh, if you get the paper version, I think it costs you $5 and that's taken off of your first order. But it's got tons of stuff in there for the rider, not just the gear that they make. They've got a bunch of other gear that they handle and sell there. Aerostitch.com forward slash ARR. Let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Your uh, map on your website shows where you've been, which is great, through this um, this tracking system that you have. Tell us a little bit about the route. Well, what I've done so far is I've gone I've gone through Europe, so I went across to Poland, then down to Serbia, um, obviously between several other countries, and then uh, and then I went through Turkey into Iran, um, and hang then on, hang on a second, no, into Iran. What? Why would you choose to go through Iran? Because that seems to me like a country that everybody's afraid to go into. Oh, well, I, th- I think I'm, I'm hoping that, that people's opinions are changing ever around. And I, I think they are slowly and that's coming about from people going in there and, and coming out with such great stories of it. Um, I was a little bit dubious, of course, before I went in there on my own, because you get two sides still. You get some people saying, oh, it's great country. And other people say, what are you doing, you crazy woman? You're going into Iran on your own as a woman? You know, there, there doesn't seem to be any positives. <laughs> and and so um, you, you then sort of Google images for Iran or whatever you try and do to, to um, get a little bit of research. And often some sort of scary images come up and women being stoned or something, you know, and it's, uh, it's a very mixed, uh, mixed bag of emotions before you go in there. And of course, when I got to the border... I, I, I guess I wanted to do it because it was different and potentially a challenge and because I wanted to um, see for myself and form my own opinion. Then I could be, you know, it's, it's some of the countries I've been most afraid of have turned out to be the most exciting and the most have given me the most back. Um, and yeah, coming, getting to the border in Iran, uh, the, the, the border control kind of looked at me from the other side of the gate and as if to say, 
you want to come in here, you know? And I'm thinking, uh, uh, I, I really don't know. Do I? I, I thought I did. <laughs> I thought I did. Really, I'm not sure now. And it was very scary when I crossed over. Initially, um, I, I have to I have to admit that I was feeling like a five-year-old and, and I didn't know how to behave. I wasn't sure if my top was too short or if my hair was covered enough. I was terrified to show any hair. I really thought that if I got this wrong, that I was going to get arrested, you know. Um, and uh, I, I just didn't know what was polite. What, it just felt like I was an alien being dropped into onto another planet. Um, but uh, very soon you kind of come to realise that uh, it's it's actually you know it they're not all extremists there and they're all humans and they're all very forgiving and actually extremely welcoming um so i had some of my best times and i met some of the nicest people in iran and in iran are you camping are you staying at hotels or how'd you do it i did a bit of everything there as well so i i camped i um i stayed in hotels which were fairly cheap um and i stayed with local people who i mean (laughs) you can go anywhere in iran and people are stopping you and pulling you over. In fact, that's probably the most dangerous thing in Iran is getting run off the road by people who want to take you home and feed you. Um, <laughs> or they want to hand you a bottle of water as you're doing 60 miles an hour down the road, you know, so they open the window and start trying to hand you things as you're <laughs> alongside you. Um, but uh, yeah, I did a lot of everything. And actually staying with people was was the best bit because you got to get behind closed doors where everybody was more relaxed and uh, the women pulled off their hijabs and you could really see the the their true beauty because they are beautiful women and uh and you got to learn so much and the hospitality is amazing people wouldn't let you pay for anything even even fuel um you stop at a gas station they're just insisting that you don't pay um now there is a thing in iran where they have i think it's called tariff where it's like a uh, it's almost like a polite thing so so People between the, themselves, they will go to buy something, and the person selling will say no, no, and refuse the money. And you have to keep insisting until they accept the money. And it's like a polite thing, you know, like you go to a, open the door for somebody after you, no, after you, no, after you. It's kind of a bit like that. So I was aware of this, and I was thinking, no, I have to keep insisting, right? But I would keep insisting, and they would keep saying no, and I'd say, I'm putting my gloves on now, I'm I'm riding away, you got to take my money, I'm too hot for this, and and they're like, no, no, just go. And I think they were just so pleased to see somebody there, and they wanted to make sure that you went away with a positive experience from Iran, and I certainly did that. You went from Iran to India? Yeah, via Dubai. Yes. Um, originally, I was going to go through Pakistan, but there was a couple of incidents uh, just before I went through Pakistan and um, I, I made the decision not to go through. So I got a ferry, went as far south as I could into Iran, got a ferry over to Dubai and spent a couple of weeks there and then shipped over to Mumbai in India. And what are you doing to check? You said there's a couple of incidents. Are you hearing this in the news or are you checking social media? Or is it on a website? Well, uh, there was one of them was on the news where uh, a a couple of girls being kidnapped. And the other one was uh, a blog that I'd been following of a cyclist, Spanish cyclist who was going through. And um, his you have to have armed guards to take you through a certain area of Pakistan, quite a large area of Pakistan. And um, he was put on the truck and taken through. And unfortunately, the convoy was attacked and a lot of his uh, the guards that were with him were shot. And um, he was he was injured as well. Um, and it was it was not long before I was due to go through. So I, I thought, well, OK, I'm, I'm not going to put myself and others at risk just just for my silly adventure, you know, and, and worry my parents even more. So I decided on Dubai. 
you went through India and then you've got a little zigzag here. What's that zigzag you can't quite see unless you zoom in on the map? You went to the mountains there. Yes, I went up into the Himalayas and um, that was one of my favorite experiences, actually. Uh, oh, it was it was a real adventure. Um, and once you've been in India for a while, it's it's exciting. It's it's extremely hot because I went there in midsummer. So it was the hottest time of the year. What is what a Welsh girl in India at the hottest time of the year. It was a ridiculous idea. But uh, when you say hot, how hot? I mean, it was hot. So I, mean, <laughs> I don't know exactly. Like temperature wise. It I mean, was in the 40s, you know. Um, like you can't hold ice cream outside. No. I mean, and, and it's humid too, right? So it's, it's even the Indians were saying, oh, it's really hot. I was like, okay, well, I'm a Welsh girl. So imagine how I'm feeling. <laughs> and, and the thing is in India, everybody wants to talk to you as well. So they're all stopping to talk to you in the midday sun and you're going, I really need to get going now. You know, I've got another six hours of this. You can go home. So um, you had to kind of balance your politeness with uh, survival. (laughs) Um, So, yes, it was extremely hot and it never cooled down at night. Um, So once I got out of the crowds and and the heat and and all that kind of thing, which I enjoyed, but I found after a few weeks of it that I was starting to get a little bit stressed. And so I was like, I just need to get to the mountains. I need to cool down. I need to get some fresh air. And uh, eventually I got up into the Himalayas and went and went into what they call um, Biker's Paradise, which is uh, the region of Ladakh. And that is stunning. Um, The the roads are, are are great. I say the roads are great. They're mostly sort of dirt tracks, you know, um, but they're great fun. You get some river crossings up there. You get landslides. You you get a bit of everything, everything that you'd expect from a proper adventure, you know, um, and uh, and it's stunningly beautiful. So I like that proper adventure, which which basically means that you've got some terrifying stuff in there as well, just to make it proper. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to say it, actually. I keep hearing myself saying, and I do hate using that because some, you know, a proper adventure is not one for me is not the same for somebody else. You know, somebody else, uh, a proper adventure is something where you get a bit of everything, get all those emotions going. And that could be something completely different to what mine is, to, to what somebody else's is. So, so yeah. You went on to Thailand and you ended up uh, going to Australia as well. I did. And what was Australia like? It was hot again. <laughs> um, it was extremely hot, but it was wonderful. Actually, when I was told, I went road through the Northern Territory, which is all desert, of course. And after Indonesia, Malaysia, India, all the, a lot of the Asian countries, um, well, firstly, I was told that it was going to be boring. Um, some people were worried about me riding through. My parents, for example, that was one of the places that they were worried about. I was thinking, well, it's only Australia, right? But um, of course, the north. <laughs> but, <laughs> of but, course the- but they're the ones with all the poisonous animals, all the dangerous animals, and then and then the weather, like you're saying, the Northern Territory. Just the yeah. the the desert alone can kill you. Yes, but I did have always had spare water. I had shelter in the form of a tent and at night you get the road trains coming through. So I wouldn't have been stuck there for long. Um, and that's what I told myself. And the the feeling of freedom I got in, in the Northern Territory was great. There's no corners. So you, you're just going to be on a straight road for a long time and see nobody. Um, lots of termite hills, which which I found that they dress up. So you could be driving along and think, wow, there's somebody stood over there. And actually it's a termite hill that somebody's put a hat and a jacket on or a vest or something. <laughs> and I saw quite a lot of those. It's hilarious. 
yeah, it was a real feeling of freedom because I'd been in crowds for so long. And every time I stopped, I was generally center of attention. I felt like a rock star in Asia. I got to Australia. There's nobody there. Or when there was, they're not interested. You're just another biker, right? Um, so uh, it was a great feeling. And even the straight roads, I didn't seem to mind. I did some recording. I went slightly crazy, I think, and did lots of singing and screaming in my helmet and um, <laughs> just enjoyed the freedom. The camping was great. I didn't worry too much about the animals, although... There was one incident um, when I was camping and uh, I could hear something outside. And often you hear lots of little rustling noises and you tell yourself that it's smaller than it sounds. You know, it's just a little mouse or a little bug. And I could hear this rustling and I thought, okay, it's just a bug. Just ignore it. And eventually I'm trying to sleep and it keeps rustling. And eventually I bang on the side of my tent and I'm like, shut up. And as I bang the side of my tent, I hit something solid. And uh, it was warm and solid and breathing. And I was desperately trying to think, okay, what animals would be here? Where, where am I? I'm in Australia. What animals are there? It can't be a crocodile or an alligator because it's warm. Um, do they have bears here? I was frantically going through this list of what it could be. Is it a dingo? I don't know. Um, maybe it's a koala. Maybe something cute and fluffy. Uh, and uh, I was actually... Uh, I, I'm. Uh, well, I, I'm not afraid to say I, I actually wouldn't leave my tent. In, it was I was too scared to go and see what it was. <laughs> and so I stayed in my tent thinking, well, it's not hurting me. Just leave it alone. Um, and in the morning, uh, under the, well, as soon as the sun got up, I went and had a look. And it was a little wallaby, <laughs> a little swamp wallaby. <laughs> I wanted to strangle it. It was very cute, but I wanted to strangle it. So <laughs> Tough little guys. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't find anything. I mean, um, I've, I met a couple of snakes along the way, but the snakes don't really scare me too much. I used to keep snakes when I was younger and they, uh, you know, they, they're easily manageable. Spiders, not so, not so keen on, but uh, no, Australia was a great experience. It really was. You left Australia and you went to South America. Did you fly or did you take a boat? I flew um, because of my time frame. I had to get to Antarctica. I was going to make it, if I was going to make it to Antarctica, I had a very small weather window. So um, I went to Australia a little bit quicker than I would have liked to. I spent eight weeks there. Could have spent another two two months there easily. Um, but uh, I had to keep moving. And so I went from Sydney across to Buenos Aires. And then uh, by both of us went by plane, me, me and the motorbike. And um, yeah, we landed in Buenos Aires in January, I think. It was just after the Dakar. So uh, on the streets of, uh, of Buenos Aires, we got a lot of attention. People kept shouting Dakar at me as <laughs> if I'd just done it. <laughs> I was like, yes, that's me. <laughs> it was a great experience. Well, I'm curious about Antarctica because, you know, not a lot of people ride in Antarctica. It's not a big destination for, for bikers. No. Um, how did you get there? Well, it took me a long time to organize. And, and I, as I said, I've been telling everybody I was going to ride to seven continents. I had no idea how I was going to do it at that stage, but I had to find a way. Now, I'm not keen on going on the sea, going in boats, really. It's not me. So I expected that if I could find anybody, it would be a big ship, right? It'd take me and the motorbike across and we'd get across the Drake Passage, which is one of the one of the roughest seas in the world, I think. Uh, past Cape Horn, we'd go on a big ship. Um that wasn't the case. Eventually, I found somebody to agree to take me in the motorbike, and it was on a small sailing yacht. So uh, it was a 60-foot sailing yacht called the Icebird, and it was an Australian couple, and they said, yeah, we'll take you. We're up for the adventure. No worries, but we can't bring you back. Um, we can we can get you there, but we, we have to pick up some uh, extreme kayakers or something who are flying in because they don't want to sail across. 
So we're going to pick them up and take them kayaking. So we can get you there, but we can't get you back. So, um, so I thought, uh, okay, a sailing yacht, um, really? Uh, I'd seen photographs and video footage of the waves that you could get on the Drake Passage. And so this was probably one of my scariest moments was getting on that boat. But I knew that all I had to do was get on the boat and then I had no choice to turn back. Well, hang on a second. There's a real problem here because as far as I know, there's no trains heading from Antarctica back to South America. So you've only got a one-way passage. What was the plan at that point? <laughs> well, what we did was we kept the, the skipper had a few contacts. And so uh, what we did over time was we kept sort of radioing people and ships that we knew of that were going to be in the area. And eventually a Russian icebreaker um, agreed to uh, to take the bike back for us. Um, so I actually got, I eventually got on the plane uh, that the kayakers came on. So they had chartered a flight. So I, I ended up getting back on 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 their plane, um, and that was after dropping Ronda the Honda off on this Russian icebreaker. So we had to transfer her over, and uh, much to the guys, the crew's uh, excitement, <laughs> we kind of they came and picked her up on his Zodiac, and we raced her back and and dragged her onto the uh, onto the ship, and they brought her home, and I met her at uh, Porter Williams. So did the bike ever touch the the shore, so to speak, of Antarctica? Of course, yeah, that was the whole point. Um, We had to to get her onto the land. And we actually did that twice. Um, Now, we didn't ride to the pole or anything like a lot of people have asked me. I have to kind of let them down slightly and say, no, I'm sorry, I just sort of rode up and down a little bit. Uh, Why not? um, You were just short for time? uh, Yeah, you know. I mean, that that makes it sound like there's a road there. Well, why would you just ride to the pole while you're there? (laughs) Well, you know, uh, maybe maybe that's my next adventure. Who knows? But um, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was really really just uh we we rode i rode twice so we the biggest the hardest part was getting there and then figuring out how we were going to get the bike onto the land onto the shore so we um we had to use a a small zodiac designed for five people and we used the boom of the of the boat to basically rope her across down so we sort of swung it out and roped it used the ropes to sort of uh bring her down onto the uh, onto the Zodiac. And then we put five people in the Zodiac to hold the bike up. Now we've got a bike and five people in a five-man Zodiac in water that if you fall in without a dry suit on, you've got probably got a couple of minutes before you die. You know, <laughs> it's pretty cold water. Mm-hmm. So your body starts shutting down very quickly. And so this was pretty, I'm like, are we really doing this? Is this, are we actually doing this? Um, but of course, you know, you just kind of go with the flow and you keep going. And, and eventually we made it to the shore very slowly, sort of navigating through the icebergs. And uh, we made it to the shore and we we dragged her. It's a lot about brute force and ignorance, really. So we dragged her off and rode around, had some fun, took some pictures, had some champagne. And um, well, well, when you got to shore and you're going to fire it up, and this is a testament for Honda, which I know you got from Honda. <laughs> Did yeah. it start right up? Straight away. Instantly, straight away, straight away. Now, the only thing I did to prepare her for the sea was um, I wasn't entirely, I had no idea what to do because she was going to be outside. It wasn't a big ship where we could put her in the hold. So she had to sit on the on the deck and uh, cross the Drake Passage. So all I could think of to do was to cover her in WD-40, wrap her up in, in cling fill, in cling wrap, um, take the battery out, of course. And um, and that was it. And so when we got there, we unwrapped her. Oh, I put a, a bag over her over her head, as I as I like to say, <laughs> and duct taped that around her head. So she it was pretty unceremonious. Um, 
And uh, and then we unwrapped her and washed her down with clean water and uh, put the battery back in. First time on the button, no problem. It was uh, it was freezing cold and she'd been through some fairly rough conditions, so not bad. Pretty impressive. Why doesn't your bike track show that you were you were as far south as you were? Because it it relies on phone signal. So my tracker is uh, is. Um, it's called bike. It's a, called Road Angel, and uh, it's a British company who who have it for bike theft. It's really designed for bike theft, um, and we decided to put one in to see uh, so people could watch, follow me, and of course, if the bike goes missing, we can track the bike. But uh, uh, so it's not yeah, satellite. It's, it's cell phone only. It's cell phone. Well, it does have a satellite system, but it only works if the bike's been stolen and is out of satellite, then for so- somehow they can figure that out in the office somehow. But I'm not entirely sure how that works, but um, but that's all that's tracking. So where you see straight lines on that on that uh, map that, that you were looking at previously, um, the straight lines are where there's been no phone signal. So actually it shows I've only done something like, I'm not sure, 46,000 miles. And actually it's 51 now, I think. Oh yeah, it shows so, you 46,398 miles. Yeah. So is what it shows on there. So you were paying for data all this time through all these countries? No, no, it was, uh, the, the company gave it to me for free. So they've, they've... So they have it set up with, with a phone that, that covers a bunch of different bands and away you go. Yeah, it just uses local phone signals. I'm not. In, uh, I'm sorry, I got to help you on the technical side. No, it's okay. <laughs> I think I, we were just talking about this or something similar. Um, um, one of our regulars for Adventure Ride Radio, Raw Graham Field, was mentioning. I'm not sure if it was this one or another one, um, but it was. He was also testing one out, which I, I found um, uh, interesting. You know, it's it's interesting to think that they're using cell towers, especially with how you've used it, because you went around the world and you can see this been picked up in all these different countries so seamlessly, obviously, from one yeah. cell company to another. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's not designed for this. I mean, I, I started off with a spot tracker as well, which has got the emergency button on it. And, you know, you carry it on your handlebars or whatever. And But it didn't that didn't work either in a lot of countries. So I, I lost faith in that. Uh, uh, just I mean, a lot of people have a great amount of faith in it, but I felt like it was just something extra to carry. I didn't feel I needed it. And, um, you know, and so this tracker was just there. I didn't have to do anything with it. It's just hidden on the bike. So um, but like I said, it wasn't designed to track people around the world. It was designed to track for when the bike is stolen. Um, so it's so supposed I think, to be activated at a certain time then? Yeah. It, well, it's it's just there on the bike and when the bike, you know, when the bike goes, it, it follows. But um, but it's not really designed to, to follow you around the world as, for see. such a big journey, you know. Um, but it's done pretty well. So it's, there's only a few straight lines in there. Yeah, it looks like a, a pretty good coverage you've got out of it. So from there, you um, you went up South America. You've made your way all the way up into you're now sitting in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, place I was born. You're born in Canada, but your accent is, is clearly not Canadian. Now, as much as some people may, may not pick that up, they may think that BC <laughs> sounds like this. BC would sound more like I sound right now. You sound a little more like UK. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, I moved to Canada when I was five. Um, my parents are British. They came here in the 70s and uh, for, during, I think, the recession, they came for work and a better life. And uh, 10 years later, uh, they moved back to the UK again. I think they missed the family. Uh, and um, I was five years old at that stage. So It hasn't all been roses. You alluded to that to begin with uh, on the trip. You know, you had many ups and downs. You had at least one incident, didn't you, when you were in a crowd? 
uh, you're talking about the India situation? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I found myself, this comes from bad planning, of course, and uh, not doing enough research, but that's sometimes the best way to have an adventure. Uh, <laughs> that, that's interesting. Be- before you get into tells a story, because I'd, I'd really like to hear this, it's interesting that you recognize right off that it's totally your bad planning. It's not like you got into a place that's a, an evil place. Oh, no, not at all. It wasn't evil at all. No, it was pretty overwhelming, but it wasn't evil. Um, and, it, and it was dangerous, but only because it's the sheer volume of people. And and it was um, and it was per- obviously down to my bad planning. If I'd have done any research on where I was going, I would have found out that the, one of the biggest festivals or the biggest pilgrimages in India was happening right under my nose. <laughs> and then I was about to ride into it. So it wouldn't have been difficult for me to find that out. But uh, I just rode and um, suddenly realized there was a lot of traffic and it was getting worse and worse. And the next morning I found somewhere to sleep. And then the next morning I, I uh, woke up and found myself in the middle of the, it was absolute chaos. There was traffic everywhere. The roads were blocked, gridlocked. Um, and it was, uh, as I said, the biggest pilgrimage in, in India where they come from hundreds of miles around to collect water from the river Ganges and, um, and then they take it back to their temples. And that's by any means. So that's by truck, by motorbike, running, walking, by wheelbarrow, whatever it takes, that's what they do. And they carry them in buckets and or whatever. And uh, I was stuck in the middle of it. And there was hundreds and hundreds of people. Now, I found out later all this information. I didn't know what was going on. But it turns out that people, you know, get killed there every year just from the sheer volume of people and stampedes and, and, and that kind of thing. And I remember, and it was extremely hot again. I had all my all my life, you know, my, my luggage and everything, I had all my equipment. Um, I was wearing all my clothing, boots, helmet, big black jacket and black trousers. Everybody else was uh, in obviously t-shirts and <laughs> tiny little motorbikes and things. And I couldn't go anywhere. So it took me, um, it took me eight hours to do 10 kilometers that day. I got crushed by the people. I got pushed up against walls. I got, um, uh, yeah, a lot happened. Um, and we, and I dehydrated, I, I nearly fainted several times and I, and I actually thought I was going to die. I felt very lonely that day. Cause I thought if I collapsed, there's nobody to help me. Um, I very nearly considered leaving the bike and pushing my way out of the crowd. Uh, but, um, I just couldn't leave the bike. <laughs> so eventually somebody helped me and we got ourselves into a ditch and, and started dragging the bike through this ditch. And, um, somebody gave me some water. I remember a policeman beating people to try and get close to me to help. Uh, he was beating people out of the way. Uh, and we made eye contact and he was just looking at me as if to say, you're on your own. I can't get to you. Um, so it got pretty scary. And I, and I did think, oh, this is, this is it, you know? So, so it's a crowd. It's not like anyone's trying to do anything wrong. It's, it's just the sheer volume. Just the sheer volume. And there were sort of stampedes going through. So there was a lot of, you'd hear whistles blowing and people shouting and there'd be a sudden stampede through of people coming in the opposite direction. I had no idea what that was about, but they'd jump over cars, they'd push people out of the way and they'd just stampede through. And so I got involved in a couple of those. Uh, one of them came through the, the, the uh, ditch that I just got myself in to try and get out of there. And so uh, the bike got knocked over and trampled as I got pushed up against the wall and I'm screaming at them, get off my bike. (laughs) That's my bike. Um, Which is funny now, but extremely terrifying at the time. Absolutely. It was pretty scary. And I just kept thinking, I hope a fight doesn't break out. Um, You know, and uh, of course a fight did break out at one stage, but, but not too close to me. And I could just hear it and see lots of scuffling going on. But uh, I was pretty scared. I thought if something happens here, there's no way out. It felt very trapped. I felt very trapped. Um, and people, 
some people who spoke to me would say, you know, what are you doing here? This is dangerous. You shouldn't be here. And, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I know that now. <laughs> but, um, but there was no, it wasn't an aggressive crowd. It was just the sheer volume and the heat, the lack of water and, and these um, sort of stampedes. I, I, you know, I don't really understand what was going on. But eventually I made it to um, a police barrier and uh, they were staying in a hotel. They were using a hotel as a base. And um, after seeing my face, they let me in and uh, and let me stay there for about 18 hours until it all died down. And then uh, off I went again. But that night I felt amazing. I felt uh, once I got over the dehydration and had a bit of a cry and did a little video blog and, and uh, said, wow, that was pretty um, intense. Um, I then started sort of, I put ACDC on, I started dancing around the room and thinking, yes, I've got, A, I've got some of it on footage, um, B, I'm alive and I've got a great blog post um, and wow, what a story to tell. And so it was a really cool feeling in the end. Maybe it was delirium, I'm not sure. but <laughs> Well, it's another one of those where you've ridden the horrible trail where you would not yes. go back by choice, but no wow, chance. was it ever amazing to do. Yeah, anything you survive is a great yeah. adventure. <laughs> <laughs> well, where do you go from here? Hmm, uh, where am I again? Oh, that's right, Canada. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I, I have a couple of injuries at the moment. So my plan was to go up to Alaska and then across Canada and then um, into Africa, probably Cape Town and then along the East Coast home, which is another 20,000 miles, I guess, you know, not, not, not a straight line. Um, That's a whole adventure in through itself. a lot of people's perspective. That, again, is another adventure. Yeah. And unfortunately, I'm kind of starting it in a, from a bad position because, as I said, I'm injured. I, have a, I now have a, a frozen shoulder, uh, which means I can't, uh, I can't move my shoulder very much. Um, so I'm, I'm riding a lot with one hand. <laughs> How did you get injured? Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure. It was uh, after some some investigation. It turns out I have a, a, a couple of tears in there, which is then untreated caused the, fr the shoulder to freeze. So as I came into Mexico from Guatemala, I woke up one morning and my shoulder was frozen and wouldn't move anymore. And it's uh, gradually stiffened up even more now. So uh, that is going to take now over a year to, to be able to get any movement back. Uh, unfortunately. So it, it stopped hurting now. I've had a cortisone injection and it's not hurting all the time now like it was. Um, we're dealing with a lot of pain before, but now it, it only hurts if I move it in the wrong direction, um, which I try not to do very often because it feels like someone's ripped your arm off. So I, I'm nervous of falling um, on that arm, um, but I'm not, not planning on doing that. Um, and uh, the other problem is the vibrations after two years have caused some damage to my back. To, um, so there's some kind of compression going on there. So, which I think just a lot of rest and, and a bit of rehab, a bit of physio is, is going to repair, hopefully. So um, I'm resting up with some friends in, in Peachland now. And uh, I'm going to make a decision as to how my route goes in a few weeks, once we can reassess and see how, how my fitness is. But uh, we may miss out Alaska now. I say we, that's me, me, I say, I say we, that's me and Rhonda, the motorbike. Um, Rhonda the Honda. Rhonda the Honda, yeah. So uh, so we may miss out Alaska and drop some miles off. At it, anything to get to that final continent, because as I have, my mission was to get to, to seven continents. So if I have to cut some miles down, I will, but I don't want to. Um, I'm getting fitter every day, and uh, I, I still plan at this stage to do just as much as I'd as planned to do in the first place. So fingers crossed. Well, the website is one step beyond and that Steph is in your name, S-T-E-P-H. And of course, we'll have a link to that in our show notes. Stephanie, have a great trip. Keep in touch and um, we should talk again. 
Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Well, what an interesting person. And you can find out more about Steph and her journey on her Honda named Rhonda at her website, onestephbeyond.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles, tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. Green Chili Adventure Gear is also the exclusive USA distributor for Outback Motor Tech, a Canadian company that specializes in high-quality protection for motorcycles. Visit them at www.greenchiliadv.com. Greenchiliadv.com. Max BMW Motorcycles, serving adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. That's maxbmw.com. And Best Rest Products, home of Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. You know, whether you're on the road or off the road, you'll need a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, and get this, it comes with a lifetime warranty. It's the pump we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Visit them at CyclePump.com. That's CyclePump.com. Hey, if you happen to be on Facebook, we're on Facebook too. Why don't you drop by our Facebook page and like it? We'd really appreciate it. I want to give a special thanks to our co-producer, Elizabeth Martin, who, like I said before, always works tirelessly in the background and uh, never gets here on the show. And it's not because I don't ask her. Don't go there. Well, we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Certainly a lot of fun, and uh, we really enjoyed meeting Stephanie. Coming up next week, we got some good stuff coming for you. Make sure you drop back. Hey, let me remind you about our ARR Raw Show, which is our other show. You have to subscribe separately. Go by our website, www.adventureriderradio.com, and click on the Raw Episode button and uh, subscribe to that show as well. Well, that about wraps things up. So time to get out there and ride your bike. No excuses now. Ride safe. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. See you next week. No, wait, I gotta ask this. Hey, if you like what we're doing, you want to keep the show coming to you free, drop by our website, click on the donate button and consider giving us a donation. And if you do, we're going to fire back a gift to you in the mail. Check out the website to see the details, www.adventureriderradio.com. Thanks. I'm Natasha Martin, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 